Good evening. Let's open our Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 4. As we get into um, these chapters tonight, we're, we're in that period of time when Josiah, uh, the king, was carrying sort of a revival, a reformation. <clears throat> As you study the history of Israel, we, we go through the kings. They're on a downward spiral. Josiah would have been the last good one. Uh, he already had a heart for the Lord. He's a contemporary to Jeremiah. They were friends. And yet the, the reforms that um, were brought in by Josiah were really, we're going to see it in the first couple of verses here, uh, they were missing the force for the trees when, he, when the Lord talks about taking away the foreskins of your heart. And um, outwardly they were going through the motions, but they really didn't have that love that natural gratitude that comes when a person is really repentant of their sins and old things pass away and all things become new and you become this new creation and you can't help but talk about it. You want to talk about it. Um, Just today I had to uh, uh, go down to the bank, take care of some banking stuff and as I was walking, I was bemoaning the fact that I couldn't park right in front of the bank that I had to walk about a block. And as I was walking, there was a guy sitting um, on one of those new benches that they have on College Avenue, and he had his car right, right there, and he was listening to his music, and um, he was reading. I didn't think much of it. Uh, and then I had, when I was done with my business, I went back um, from going back to my car, and I took a closer look at what he was reading, and, he, and I looked over his shoulder. He didn't see me. He was reading the, the book of Judges. And I thought, well, this is interesting. And so I tapped him on his shoulder. I said, I'm teaching through Jeremiah tonight. He says, well, I've never read the book of Judges before. And I said, well, obviously you're a believer. And he says, yeah, I'm trying to seek the Lord the best I can. And we ended up fellowshipping for about 10 minutes. And um, uh, I, I told them a basic outline in the book of Judges that it's a period of a cycle of going up and down, up and down for 360 years. And he said, well, I'd never read Judges before. And I said, well, you're, he, was reading, he happened to be reading Gideon. And I said, there isn't a Bible study that I don't teach on Sunday that I don't put the little letters uh, that the Lord spoke to Gideon that says, surely I will be with you. But then I put my own name on it. To this day, I put it on every Sunday morning message because I realize unless the Lord is with you, that was Gideon's concern. Uh, I don't know what this Lord, which, what you're calling me into. And he, he needed affirmation and confirmation. And so the Lord gave it to Gideon. He says, yeah, I just read that part. And I said, well, are you plugged in anywhere? He says, no, not really. So I gave my card and uh, um, told him who I was. And we just teach through the Bible, chapter by chapter, book by book. And um, hope to see you sometime. So I'm hoping he shows up on Sunday. We'll, we'll see. But the whole idea of, of the message here, this is going to be Jeremiah's second message. And from chapter 3 to chapter 6, we have the second message being delivered to us. 
Um, chapter 3 through 6 deals with the backsliding of the people. Um, just how ungodly Israel had become. Uh, and we'll get a touch on that. We're going to show you some modern day applications on just um, the turning point in our own country, I believe, happened in 1963 when prayer was eliminated from public schools. Having said that, there's still prayer in school today. You know that? Every time a test is given, people are praying. <laughs> so don't tell me there's not prayer in school. So, and the, there is. But um, the revival there wasn't a heartfelt revival. And it wasn't like this guy that, that was, uh, he didn't care who was uh, watching him. and um, He was doing the best he could with what he knew to get closer to the Lord. And um, uh, we just had great fellowship. Never met him before, but I hope to see him again. So as we get into this, this is sort of the background. There's um, nothing happy-clappy about the Bible study tonight. Um, you're going to be grieved to the core by what I show you when I show you some of the things that Pastor Chuck warned us against way back in 1981. Chuck wrote us a letter in 1981. I kept it all these years. And what he said has come to pass spot on. Um, as some of the younger guys were wandering into um, experience and emotionalism and extreme Pentecostalism over the teaching of God's word. But we'll, we'll get to that in just a little bit. Uh, chapters 4, 5, and 6. Um, chapter 4 is going to deal with the destruction from the north. And it's a lengthy uh, chapter with you know, some uh, 31 verses. What I'm going to do is read the first four and highlight some because it's very repetitive. And it, it, it's a back and flow, flow, back and forth flow between um, Jeremiah explaining that this judgment that's going to be very brutal and final is going to come from the north. And I'm going to point out certain scriptures as we go through chapter 4. So chapter 4 is part of the second sermon of Jeremiah. And the main um, thought of it is this: where the judgment is going to come from. So having said that, let's read the first four verses. And it's really this plea that he says, if you will return to me, Israel, says the Lord, return to me. And if you will put away your abominations out of my sight. Now, in the earlier chapters, it, it gets into just how graphic it was. It was pornographic, and it was taking place openly on the high places as a form of worship. That's how bad it had gotten. And um, so when the Lord says an abomination, there are still um, things that are an abomination to the Lord. Uh, then you shall not be moved. And you shall swear the Lord lives in truth and judgment and in righteousness. The nations shall bless themselves in him, and in him they shall glory. For thus says the Lord to the men of Judah and Jerusalem, break up your fallow ground. So the idea here, the fallow ground, and do not sow among thorns. Of course, it makes us think of the parable of the, of the sower and the seed. And the only seed that actually produced fruit was a seed that was in the fertile ground. The hard ground was um, um, 
fell along the side of the road with the, where it was easily uh, stolen um, by a bird, which is representative of um, Satan himself. And so the idea of breaking it up, he's talking about the heart right now. The Lord says, a broken and a contrite heart I won't despise. I will hear that prayer. I will respond quickly. But it was all outward. And in verse 4, they all understood circumcision. That was a covenant. Circumcise yourself to the Lord and take away the foreskin from your hearts. The whole idea of circumcision was really meant to be nothing more than a sign that it cuts away the flesh and so that your heart will be open to fulfill the only commandment that the Lord has given us, and that is to love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and being. It's all about love as far as the Lord is concerned. And he says, um, love is the greatest commandment, and if you love the Lord, then everything else is going to fall into place naturally. If you love the Lord, you're not going to steal your neighbor's lawnmower. <laughs> because you love him. And if you, if you love the Lord, you're not going to lie. You're not going to steal simply because you love the Lord. New Testament says love is the fulfillment of the law. So when you're walking in the love of the Lord, these things naturally produce good fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is singular. It's love. The attributes of love are peace and joy and gentleness and kindness and long-suffering and patience and so on and so forth. But it's got to come from here because we don't have it here. Good place for an amen. It's got to come from above. This has got to be right here. And this was the Lord's complaint. The, The revival in Josiah's day was superficial. They were going through the motions. And we have a whole country of people, not so much in our generation, because most people have checked out of church completely. But, um, um, you know, in my generation growing up, everything was closed on Sunday because people went to church. A lot of them um, out of custom. Um, And it wasn't necessarily a heartfelt thing. Well, the first four verses here, says, because you haven't done that, he says, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, let my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil things you've done. Now, I'm going to get into, I get a little bit later, uh, just how bad things have gotten in our own country, give you a bunch of statistics and um, even some footage from um, contemporary Um, worship groups from around the country, one in particular in New York. Now, from here on, beginning with verse 5, my subtitle says, Judah's destruction from the north. So Jeremiah says the same thing over and over again. So what I'm going to do is, because my voice, I've circled the main ones that shows the repetitiveness of what Jeremiah is saying. This is where it's going to come from. So in verse 6, set up your stand towards Zion. Take refuge. Do not delay. For I will bring disaster from the north. So here's the first place that it's mentioned. And it's a reference to Babylon. 
And the thing that, that's, uh, when you study history, and um, Babylon is succeeding the Assyrian Empire. And what I find interesting about the Assyrian and the Babylonian Empire, just how quickly the Lord can change a whole nation in one night. Now, in um, Isaiah's day during Hezekiah, um, we find that um, it was the Assyrians that had completely surrounded the city of Jerusalem. Hezekiah made all kinds of preparations. When we go there, we visit Hezekiah's tunnel, um, engineering marvel that you can walk to to this day. Well, it was to get water in to the city while they were being laid siege by the Assyrians. The king's name is Sennacherib. And um, Isaiah went to the Lord in prayer. I mean, Hezekiah went to the Lord in prayer. And the Lord spoke to Isaiah and said, I want you to go speak to the king. Tell him, don't worry about a thing. Not one arrow is going to make it over here. And um, you're, you're going to be delivered. That was the word of the Lord to King Hezekiah. Well, that night, one angel took out 184,000 of the Assyrians in one night. The king hightailed it back to Assyria. But his own sons killed him that very evening. So we have the mighty empire, Assyrian empire, coming down in one one day, and we have the rise now of Babylon. Babylon was a farm town, basically. And then you have the rise to now Jeremiah saying the power now is going to be from the north. Not Assyria, but Babylon. And what's interesting about Babylon, uh, when they became so proud and arrogant, Nebuchadnezzar got saved. Um, In chapter 4 is his own personal testimony to the whole world, how he was proud and arrogant and and took credit for doing everything. Isn't this great Babylon that I have built with my hands for my glory, blah, blah, blah. And while the words were in his mouth, an angel came and, and um, made him crazy. And for the next seven years, he went around like an ox, long, tangling fingernails, and insane in the head. And, um, and then one day, the Bible says he came to his senses. The Lord just opened up his mind. And uh, he saw that God is the only one to receive the worship and the glory. And the last verse of Daniel 4 tells us, And those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. And he was the most proud, prideful man on, on the planet. But he, his grandson didn't learn the lesson. So when his grandson comes to the throne, he decides to mock the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and have an orgy party uh, with the utensils from the temple that's going to be destroyed. It's not, Jeremiah is predicting this is going to come. It's going to be complete and completely devastating. And as a result, what's interesting to me is that Babylon also fell in one evening because uh, uh, the Medes and the Pers, Darius, made their way underneath the gates of, of, uh, of Babylon. And that evening, 
I, you know, of course, the famous writing on the wall that the kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. But your history. And that night he was killed. So as I think about that, great world empires, the United States of America is the most powerful and greatest nation that this world has ever known. Or at least at one time was. So we want to give me an amen or not? And what I see and what is being done and flaunted in the same, same manner that if Assyria can fall in one night, if Babylon can fall in one night, I believe any matter of things that are happening in the world, economic, moral, um, fill in the blank, any one of those shoes could drop and um, our lives could be forever changed in one night. We have the technology to make those sort of things happening. All right. Um, the point with all that in verse, in verse 7 is that it's going to come from Babylon. Um, the destroyer of the nation is, is, is on his way. He has gone forth from his place to make your land desolate. Your cities will be laid waste without inhabitant. For this cloth, you clothe yourself in sackcloth, lament and wail, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. This is the whole book of Jeremiah, gang. He said, forget about being happy clappy. This is not a reality right now. You need to, you need to be in mourning. You need to be in prayer because the Lord has seen your abominations and you haven't repented of them. And so he's going to bring this judgment. Um, it'll come to pass in that day that the heart of the king will perish, the heart of princes, the priest will be astonished, and the prophets shall wonder. Go down to verse 13. Behold, he will come like a cloud. This is another reference to Babylon. And his chariots like a whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are plundered. Um, we have the... Three war judgments of revelation. And um, it's a very strong, when the Lord says, well, that they're going to be plundered. Oh, Jerusalem, wash your hand from wickedness that you may be saved. All right, again in verse 16. Make mention to the nations. Yes, proclaim against Jerusalem that watchers come from a far country. Do you see the repetitiveness? He's making the point in chapter 4, matter of fact, the whole chapter, is that this is going to come from the north, and um, it's going to, the judgment is going to come quickly, and it's going to come from uh, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Let's go all the way down to verse 29, where he says, The, the whole city shall flee from the noise of the horsemen and the bowmen, they shall go into the thickets. They'll try to climb up on rocks. Every city will be shaken. Not a man will dwell in them. And when you are plundered, what will you do? The last thing they did is burn Solomon's temple that would, was there for almost 500 years. The very heart and soul of Jerusalem is going to be um, burned to ashes. And yet their attitude and their lifestyle was well, though you clothe yourself with crimson and though you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold and though you enlarge your eyes with 
with uh, paint or makeup. In vain you make yourself fair. Your lovers will despise you, and they will seek your life. So the warning was judgment is imminent. It's going to happen, but their attitude was like um, Babylon's king when he fell that night. Uh, You know, judgment was the furthest thing from their mind. He was having a, a drunken orgy and mocking God with the vessels from the temple. So as we look at chapter 4, and I would sum up chapter 4, remember this is 3 through 6 is Jeremiah's second message. There's nothing positive in it. If I would uh, highlight chapter 4, I would simply say that its primary uh, thing that Jeremiah is getting across in chapter 4 is where the judgment is coming from. It will be complete. And um, even though it's coming, your attitude is going to be one of haughtiness. Um, And you're going to seek to enjoy your life. But the last verse says, For I have heard the voice of a woman in labor and the anguish of her who brings forth her first child, the voice of the daughter of Zion, bewailing herself, who spreads her hands, saying, Woe is me. Now for my soul is weary because of murders. And um, uh, Jerusalem was completely uh, ravished and destroyed and they were taken into captivity. And they were there for 70 years just like Jeremiah um, said they would be. Now, in chapter 5, the title that we would give this is... is um, the sins that eventually is going to bring about this judgment. Josiah is going to die. They didn't even have a copy of the book. When Josiah came into power, uh, he wanted to have the house of God restored. It was in ruins. And during the building project, they actually found a copy of the law. And they brought it to Josiah, and he, he just fell apart. He says, we are in big trouble because now I see what God's standard is, and we're so far removed from that. Um, he gave it his, his best, but in spite of that, uh, the, the previous judgments, it was uh, a short-lived, and the rest of the kings, until the captivity, none of them uh, walked in the fear of the Lord or the ways of the Lord. So if I would summarize chapter 5, <clears throat> um, You can't find a good man anywhere. It reminds me of Genesis 6, where it says the thoughts of men were only evil continually. And um, when we read this first verse here, it says, Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem, see now and know, and seek in her own place. See if you can find anybody. See if you can find a man if there is anyone who executes judgment, who seeks truth, and I'll pardon her, go, go and check it out. Well, for the one thing that Jeremiah and Noah had in common is that they were faithful in their generation, and none, neither one of them had any converts, not one. But yet they're called faithful. Now, let's make it applicable. As it was in the days of Noah, so will it be when the Son of Man comes again. The parable of the fig tree, when you see the nation of Israel regathered, know that 
The nation that sees that will see the fulfillment of all Bible prophecy. And then it gets into the verse where it says, no man knows the day or the hour, which is a reference to the rapture of the church. So I look at the flood. The Lord tells us in our generation, go back and remember that I'm the one that said as it was in the days of Noah. That's what it's going to be like again. Um, You know, every day something happens. Today it was in Tel Aviv where two Palestinians from the West Bank dressed up as Orthodox Jews went into a restaurant and started opening fire. It was the leading story on on the news tonight. So more and more, um, we're going to be seeing, just like the Lord said, the focus is going to be on Israel and the the Middle East. And um, we're seeing the stage set uh, for the Lord to deal with these nations. And um, uh, because our country is going down the tubes so quickly, we can't believe it ourselves how fast things are changing. Um, remember the story of uh, Diosthenes, the, the Greek philosopher who went through the streets of Athens with a lantern? They asked him what he was looking for, and the answer was, well, I'm looking for an honest man. He never did find one. I think that you would have the same trouble in Los Angeles and maybe also in your town. If you can find a man, I will pardon him. That's basically what the Lord is saying. How many are out there? I really believe the only reason the Lord is withholding the judgment this country deserves is there is the ten righteous, as the story with Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. And so it was a counting thing. Go and see if you can find any. And, of course, Abraham was concerned because Lot lived in Sodom. And he goes through this whole, you know, business dealing thing with the Lord. If there's 50, will you spare it? Yeah, I'll spare it for 50. Well, what about 40? Lord, would you spare it for 40? Yeah, I would. For 40, if you could find 40 righteous people. Well, how about 30, Lord? And you know the story. goes to 20. And then he's afraid the Lord's going to get upset with him. And he says, well, Lord, how about 10? If you can find 10 in Sodom, would you destroy it? And he said, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't destroy it for the 10. My point is, I believe judgment should have already come. But in America, there's still people like yourself who believe that coming out to a Wednesday night Bible study is one of the most important things you can do. To stay on a cutting edge, um, to keep yourself being exhorted, the Bible says, exhort one another daily. Well, it's called today, lest you would become hardened. Well, what do we read here? Break up your fallow ground. My heart can become hard. You know what makes it soft again? When I get into this book, <laughs> it softens it up. It gets me pointed to true north again. And I go, oh, yeah, that's why I'm serving the Lord. He's got a purpose and plan. It doesn't mean that judgment isn't coming. It is. And, uh, but for the sake of the, the righteous that are here, judgment could not come on Sodom and Gomorrah until Lot and his wife were out. Imagine Lot going and telling his family, well, it's going to rain fire and brimstone tonight. We've got to leave. And what did they do? They laughed. So what do you do when you tell them, God's going to judge, but 
He's got a plan, and he's going to rapture us all out before it comes. What do your friends do? Well, they think you're crazy. Just like Lot's family thought he was crazy. They thought they were kidding. So what did the angels do? They grabbed them by the collar and pulled them out and said, we can't do anything until you're out of here. So get out of here. <laughs> and as soon as they were out, and he said, by the way, don't look back. It's so bad back there, I don't want you to look back for one second. But Lot's wife got caught up into the lifestyle. She's the gal here painting her eyelids and um, not grieved with the sin that was all around her. So when the Lord talks about his coming, he says, make sure you're watching, make sure you're ready. And then he says something interesting. Remember Lot's wife. Why should we do that? Because Lot's wife looked back because her heart was back there when everything was being destroyed and she never made it. So as we begin uh, chapter 5, the Lord is saying, go ahead, look around. If you can find any, then I'll spare it, just like Noah was spared, just like Lot was spared, and just like the church will be spared before God's wrath comes upon the earth. Some people get, um, get confused between the idea that we hold to the preacher view of the rapture simply because we're trying to escape persecution. Um, well, maybe in America, but if you look around the world, there's persecution galore that's taking place. No, every Christian, and it's going to be more and more as time goes on, everybody who lives godly in Christ Jesus, what does it say? Shall suffer what? Persecution. But that's not what the tribulation is all about. The, the, the problems that I have and the persecution that comes against me today is not from my father. He's my comforter. But it's from my adversary. He's the one that wants me. He's the one that wants you. So the source of the attack that brings the persecution is from the devil and his, his hordes. That's not the tribulation. The tribulation, Revelation 6, verse 17, clearly says this is God's wrath on a Christ-rejecting world. And those are two different things. And so we shouldn't be confused about that. So the Lord is looking as we begin chapter 5. Is there anybody out there that uh, is seeking truth? And and I'll pardon her. I'll I'll make it right with you. And um, as we go through the list here, I have some. Let's go to verse 7. And he's pleading with them back and forth as they are involved with their wickedness. Uh, Verse 7 says, How shall I pardon you for this? Your children have forsaken me and sworn by those that are not gods. When I fed them to the full, then they committed adultery and assembled themselves by troops in the harlots' houses. And they were like uh, well-fed, lusty stallions, everyone's neighbor after his neighbor's wife. So you have wife swapping going on here. Again, I made reference that the style of worship was clearly pornographic as they worshipped on the, on the high places. And so as we look at chapter 5, the Lord is now um, bringing this judgment. Um, let's go down to verse 15. 
Behold, I will bring a nation against you from afar. All right, here he goes back and he's repeating that it's going to come from Babylon, a nation whose language you don't know, nor will you be able to understand it. And they shall eat you up and harvest all of your bread, which your sons and your daughters should eat. Um, And they will eat up your vines and your fig trees. They shall destroy your fortified cities in which you trust with the sword. Then verse 18, he says, Nevertheless, in those days, says the Lord, I will not make a complete end of you. Because there's going to be Daniel. He's going to go to Babylon. He'll be there for the full 70 years. And, um, but the multitude of those kept alive are going to be aliens, it says in the land in verse 19. You will serve foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve aliens in a land that is not yours. And um, I'm going to cut, because I want to do a little sidetrack here. If I would sum up chapter 5, let's go to verse 30. He says, let's go to 29. Shall I not punish them for these things, for their sins? Shall I not avenge myself on such a nation as this? An astonishing and horrible thing has been committed in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely. Just as we have false prophets today telling you what you want to hear rather than telling you that judgment is imminent and the Lord will judge. So uh, Jeremiah, it was him and the Lord. And, um, but there were plenty of false prophets telling people what they wanted to hear. And the priests rule by their own power and my people love to have it so. Tell me something that I want. But what will you do in the end? All right. Let's, uh, instead of having just a history lesson of the book of Jeremiah, the application of, of what's happening should be really obvious to us here. And so I'm going to do a little sidetrack, talk a little bit about the demise of our own nation in a very, very short period of time. And just like my friend, um, that I met downtown today, who was reading Judges, and he, because he had never read it before, I was explaining the cycle, that when they, they hit bottom, the Lord would raise up a judge. And then they would, they would, there would be repentance, and that cycle lasted for 360 years. Well, such is the case with the kings of Judah. You had good ones. I think they had 20, and of the 20, I think there was eight or nine that were good. The ten northern tribes didn't have one good one. And, um, of course, they fell first because of that. The reoccurring phrase for the um, what was called Israel is they did evil. This is talking about the kings. They did evil in the sight of the Lord after their sins of Jeroboam. And um, his sin was, of course, telling the people they couldn't worship in Jerusalem. And he made these two golden calves and said, worship them put one in Bethel, and he put one in Dan. And uh, we actually showed the people where, when we go to um, uh, the Tel Dan, we actually take them to the spot where they actually worship this golden golden calf. Well, the cycle finally came to an end, and they went into captivity. And what I'm leading into right now is, gang, this is not going to go on forever. Um, the Lord will be patient so long and then he will bring judgment. And it's imminent. 
And we really saw the decline of this in 1963 when prayer was eliminated from our schools. This is really where you can mark it. There was a lot that was happening. I mean, Kennedy died. Was it 62 or 63? 63, November 22nd and 63. Okay, so there was a lot going on in 63. February of 64, um, when we were heartbroken and disillusioned, we had the Beatles show up on the Ed Sullivan show. And anybody my age was watching Ed Sullivan that night. And um, uh, our whole perspective and where our head was at as far as being Americans, you know. My dad was a barber and I wanted to grow long hair. We fought at the table every single night. That's just the way it was. But my culture, I didn't know the Lord. I just uh, wanted to sing, she loves you, yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, it made you feel good. I mean, the influence that it had on me, I was in sixth grade, we went out and made guitars out of cardboard. And then in front of our class, we got up, four of us, and we would put on the Beatles, She Loves You, and um, um, I think I Want to Hold Your Hand was the other one. And we mimicked it uh, to our sixth grade class to impress all the sixth grade girls in the classroom. That's what the Beatles had going for them. And um, the culture changed, is my point, from one of innocence. And um, let me just give you some stats. For 15 years before 1963, pregnancy in girls ages 15 to 19 had been no more than 15 per thousand. After 63, pregnancy increased 187% in the next 15 years. For young girls ages 10 to 14 years, pregnancy since 63 are up 553%. Before 1963, sexually transmitted diseases among students were 400 per 1,000. Since 63, they've gone up 226% over the next 10 years. 12 years. That's young people. Let's talk about the family. Before 63, divorce rate had been declining for 15 years. After 63, divorce increased 300% each year for the next 15 years. Since 63, unmarried people living together is up 353%. Since 63, single parent families are up 140%. Since 1963, single-parent families with children are up 160%. As far as education, the toll that it took, the educational standard of measure has always been the SAT scores. SAT scores have been studied for many years before 63. But from 63, they rapidly declined for 18 consecutive years, even though the same test had been used since 19. 41. In 1974 and 75, the rate of decline of SAT scores decreased, even though they continued to decline. That, ha- that, that was when there was an explosion of private religious schools. There were only 1,000 Christian schools in 1965. And between 74 to 84, they increased to 32,000. Uh, some of you don't know it, but... Um, 
Well, Reed Ribble, he's uh, our representative right now, but Reed and I are friends. And um, in 1983, he called me up. Reed liked to come over at the time. He was, he was uh, owner of uh, Security Roofing. But him and his family were very much involved in establishing Calvary Bible. And he loved Bible prophecy, and I believe he still does. Last time I ran into him was in an airport somewhere. Um, and um, he called me up and he says, Dwight, the Lord has it on my heart to start a Christian school in Appleton. And um, I think you're supposed to be involved in it. And I said, um, no, I'm on the same page. Let me talk it over with, with our board and so on and so forth. And so for the first three years, a little history lesson for some of you newcomers here. For the first three years of Appleton Christian School, uh, we met back there. We had a team of people that would come in on Sunday night, and they would change the fellowship hall. They would put up um, partitions so that we had rooms. And we had, we went for, from K to third grade. And um, our board was the only board that oversaw the school. But Reed was actually the one that was really the one that was his idea. And, um, but he liked to come in and just sit down. He, he, we'd sit talk for an hour or so just about Bible prophecy because that was something that he wanted uh, to know about. Well, it outgrew us, and then it, for many years, went to different places. It went to... Um, the place on Richmond Street. Then it was on Wisconsin Avenue at the Catholic Church for a while. And it had its last stand down here in Kimberley um, uh, just within the last couple of years. But its early days, um, we were actually the one that was involved with, with getting it started. So that was, uh, I don't know how I, you know, I don't know what I would do if I had kids today with what I know is going on in the public school systems. And um, I really see the need not only for homeschooling, but for, for Christian schools. Where did I leave off? Um, let me take it. Let's just look. And uh, we see what's being taught in today uh, on the nation's top, oh, of, of the nation's top academic scholars Three times as many come from private religious schools, which operate on one-third of the funds as the public schools. Uh, introduction of outcome-based education in the 80s and 90s and now Common Core in the 2000s. It's gotten to the point we've got transgender locker rooms as something that's talked about on a daily basis. And it's on the news almost every single day. Um, switching gears, looking at our nation, since 1963, violent crime has increased 544%. Illegal drugs have become an enormous and uncontrollable problem. The nation has been deprived, and an estimated 30 million citizens through uh, legal abortions just since 1973. That number should be 57 million. Uh, said so, um, as I got that note there. Um, but it is also that this is culture at large. What I want to do now is just take a moment 
and uh, shock you a little bit about how the gospel of Jesus Christ is being replaced with a social gospel. And um, to lay the groundwork for this, um, I'm going to show you something that I'm sure is going to shock you. I'm going to warn you ahead of time. Um, The group, when I heard this, I couldn't believe it. I had to see it for myself. Um, In my generation, when the Jesus movement hit, we actually had something that was started out of Calvary Coast to Mesa called Maranatha Music. And it was beautiful, heartfelt praise worship that was pure, and it it was a a natural result of the born-again experience, and it changed music. Well, what has happened since that? If you eliminate the real real worship and uh, the real uh, Holy Spirit, and you seek to manipulate it so that it isn't the Spirit that's working, and you're turning it more into an entertainment it can reach unbelievable proportions. Um, Hillsong Church is pastored by Brian and Bobby Houston since 1978. The Hillsong brand of praise albums is widely known, just as much as Maranatha was in my generation in the 80s. The Hillsong churches, um, they have one in Sydney, Kiev, London, and the one in New York is nothing more than a rock concert accompanied by hyper-Pentecostalism and every bad thing in church today. Their worship leader is a homosexual. They also have a Bible school in Austria that is widely popular with with the youth, but teaching nothing but unbiblical doctrine and practices. There's a woman's conference that's taking place in New York, set up by Hillsong, and um, there's a guy who roams the streets of New York City. They call him the Naked Cowboy. Have you ever heard of the Naked Cowboy? I never had till this. Well, they wanted to, Hillsong wanted to become and maintain being relevant. So the youth pastor of Hillsong decided that part of the worship would include the Naked Cowboy. So this was a conference, and this is the worship service. And that's how far we've come. Now, Chuck used to say, if you're around long enough, you'll see things come full circle and repeat themselves. And in 1981, Chuck had to write a letter to all the Calvary Chapel pastors. And it was stated August 17, 1981. And what was happening is the Lord was working in in supernatural ways, and he still does today. I like to say, as Chuck says, God works supernaturally, naturally. And yet, there was a handful of guys, John Wimber being the main ringleader of this, who wanted to put the emphasis on the Pentecostal aspect and signs and the wonders. And um, Chuck was not for it. And they began to accuse Chuck of quenching the Holy Spirit for not allowing them to emphasize the signs and wonders over the teaching of the word. Now, the reason Chuck knew and, and spoke about this is he himself came out of, of uh, a Pentecostal background that was more emphasis on emotionalism 
and hype rather than the solid teaching of the word. And so he had to write this letter, and I'm actually going to share it with you tonight, because what he said is prophetic, and I'll take you down the road after I read this. But this was his concern. He says, Dear fellow co-laborers, it's been drawn to my attention that some of the pastors feel that I've been guilty of quenching the spirit of some of the Calvary chapels or their ministries. We want to assure you that we have no desire to quench the work of the Holy Spirit. I believe that the real power of the church is found in the Holy Spirit, working through the word of God in the lives of the believers in God. I do not believe that if you have only the word of God working in the lives of the believers, that you're, you're missing a very vital ingredient. I also feel that if you have the Holy Spirit working in the, the believers of God without the word, that you are also missing something, a very important ingredient. I feel that it is important that we recognize that Calvary chapels are not another Pentecostal church. If you desire to emphasize the experience aspect of the work of the Holy Spirit, it would, be, uh, it would probably be well if you would seek affiliation with a Pentecostal church. And he lists them, Assembly of God, Foursquare, Church of God, because they seem to have a more experience-orientated type of ministry which I believe that Calvary Chapel, Chapel has basically been established by God to fill in the broad gap between the Baptists, who don't believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and the Pentecostal churches. We have the Spirit of God working, but the real emphasis is on the solid foundation of the Word uh, being the basis through which the Spirit, as he confirms the Word with signs following. But... When you reverse the order, where the experience and the signs become the primary thrust, then you are moving more towards a Pentecostal position, and you should seriously consider dropping the affiliation or relation with Calvary Chapels, especially dropping the the use of the name Calvary Chapel. We pray for each of you that God will guide you in your ministries and will continue his blessing upon your churches and upon your own walk and your relationship with him. We so look forward to the opportunity of being uh, uh, you who will be able to go with us to Israel this first part of December. I believe that God has some awesome, rich blessings in store for us. Okay, um, uh, having read that, Chuck then had to address it at a conference. And he said, guys, let me put it to you this way. If you go down this road, and you put the experience above the teaching of the word, what you're going to have to do just to keep the people is to take them from something that is extreme, but then you're going to have to spice it up a little bit more, and then a little bit more, and then a little bit more. He says, I've been around long enough to see this happen when you place the emphasis on that. So now it's all these years later. Let me just give you what has happened in church history, what happened to the vineyard movement. Um, um, The vineyards grew quickly, and um, they ended up, the first place where people started to get their eyes opened up is what was happening in Toronto, Canada. It was called the Toronto Blessing. How many of you have ever heard of the Toronto Blessing? Well, it's an overemphasis of... um, 
of uh, nothing going on except um, what it had happened to the experience to keep it more active. Um, when people were prayed for, they would begin uncontrolled, uncontrolled laughter, and some of them would fall and roll around, some of them would bark like dogs. And so it went from that, and then it went from there to what we call the Kansas City Prophet Movement. We had people from our own church pack up and move to Kansas City because of the Kansas City prophets who were prophesying of this third great revival wave. And um, uh, that was the next thing on the list. After that, it was Brownsville. Brownsville was even more weird than the Toronto Blessing. And um, we had one church in town here in particular take his whole staff down there because the teaching is once you catch the anointing, then once you have it, you can pass it on to other people. So there was a whole church in our community that went to Brownsville and they came back with the fire and they proclaimed for about a year this great worldwide revival. But I watched a a well-grounded fashion church be destroyed in one year's time because of of um, bringing back the the anointing from from Brownsville. The next step, the craziest step, was what was going on with Todd Bentley down in in uh, Florida, where the absurdity of of um, uh, having the anointing upon him, where he was kicking little old ladies in Jesus so that they could be healed. I mean, it is totally absurd uh, what has happened. It's gotten to the point where Mary has just come out with this track with Chris Chris Larson. Lighthouse Trails just released it. And um, I'm holding this up here now because this is called the Alpha Course. And everything that I just told you from Toronto to um, Mike Bickle and IHOP and the Kansas City Prophets to Brownsville, all is a part of is what's called the Alpha Course and the main leaders that were involved with this movement. It is being promoted by some Calvary chapels today. And um, it is, it's not something that's, basically what it is, it's, it's the road back to Rome. And I'm going to encourage you to do your own homework. One of the things I think when I do a sidetrack on a Wednesday evening, it's to not only tell you that not just to say don't be deceived, but I got to tell you what to look out for and what to be deceived from. That's why, that's why I have to name names. Somebody want to say amen? So I'm naming names right now. The Alpha Course is, in a nutshell, uh, Mary did an extensive amount of work, and this is going worldwide now that it's been published by Lighthouse Trails. Um, the Alpha Course, bottom line, is written uh, from the Church of England, an Anglican perspective, written and taught by a man who brought us holy laughter in the Brownsville Revival, teaches that Catholics are the same uh, as Protestants and urges them to stay in the church that they're in. It's ecumenical to the core, promotes an incomplete theology of the cross and atonement, promotes New Age hyper-charismatic manifestations, promotes hyper-charismatic claiming they are of the Holy Spirit, and they teach kingdom now theology, which we call dominionism. And that is that the church 
is going to evangelize the world, and then when it's evangelized, then the Lord will come back and reclaim the kingdom. Now, anybody that's got their eyes open know that isn't happening, and that's delusional within itself. But you have no idea how popular this is worldwide and how many people are promoting it. And I'm ashamed to say that key people in the Calvary Chapel movement are endorsing this. And, um, but I want you to know we are not, okay? Just for the record, <laughs> we're not. But I'm up, up here exposing it tonight, and it breaks my heart. Just as, if you want to, we'll, we'll, I'll give you a brief overview of chapter 6. But Jeremiah is a broken-hearted prophet with a broken-hearted message. And I'm glad that we have books like Jeremiah. Um, that he just says, look, I don't care if I'm the only one. By the way, he was the only one. But there were a lot of other ones out there saying, hey, everything's fine. Um, party hardy, paint your eyes up, look good. And um, my Bible tells us that in the last days, uh, people will not endure sound doctrine. They will gravitate towards teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. And the the parallels between Jeremiah's time and where we're at in the church today. And believe me, we live in a bubble in Appleton, Wisconsin, as bad as it is compared to what's going on. And sometimes I think New Yorkers know that there's New York and they're, they're sure there's California, but I don't think they think there's anything in between. It's sort of a dead zone. It's something you fly over to get to California. And I'm sort of grateful for that because I have a lot of friends in Southern California, and they say, Dwight, you have no idea how bad it is. And I know what I've seen. Um, 75 is when I was officially in ministry, so it's 41 years now. I understand what Chuck is talking about, because I've been able to observe it myself. And what he said was spot on, that they would have to take you from one experience to the next, and when you're all washed up with that, they go, this is, people are going to say this is no different than the world and there's no substance to it. Why should I have anything to do with it? They're going to burn themselves out eventually on it. And they'll, they'll leave disillusioned and they'll want nothing to do with the church. So we are in definitely a minority. I should say that um, Bill Heibel is a keynote speaker at the last Alpha Conference. I mean Rick Warren, and this is openly taught at Willow Creek with Bill Hybels. And those are just two. Please get um, Mary's book and do your own homework on it so that um, there's churches in town that are, that are teaching it. One right down the street is teaching it right now. So as you look at chapter 6, all I'm going to give you is the final verdict that Jerusalem is to be destroyed. Um, He says, verse 17, I will set watchmen over you, saying, listen to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not listen. And that pretty much summarizes where we're at right now. Uh, We try to talk about, I tell you what, let's turn to Revelation 16 in closing because we're not going to get to chapter 6. Don't you just feel tingly all over right now? 
goosebumps just flying all over the place. And no, but it's true, guys. That's another Chuckism. Chuck says, um, if it's new, it's not true. And if it's true, it's not new. Truth is truth. And it doesn't change. And we don't have to take you from one experience to the next. What we need to do is take you from one chapter to the next. And see the whole thing as it fits together. And it will bring soundness of mind. You'll know exactly what's coming down. And the parallels between us going through Jeremiah right now and the demise of our own country is, is exactly that. Babylon is going to destroy Jerusalem. In Revelation 16, we have <clears throat> um, basically God bringing judgment um, upon Babylon and in the, in, in the fall of Jerusalem. So as we read chapter 6, basically chapter 6 is Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. If I would sum up the whole chapter, and we'll come back to it next week, and hopefully my voice will be better, and I'll read every verse. But in closing, um, this is the last of the judgments during the Great Tribulation. Again, these judgments are from the Lord himself, and this is the last of them. And it deals with the fate of Jerusalem. So in verse 17, then the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne of God, saying, It is done. And there were noises and thunders and lightnings, and it was a great earthquake. Such a mighty and great earthquake has not occurred since men were on the earth. Now the great city, now we're talking about Jerusalem. And the reason I'm closing with this is Jerusalem was destroyed then, It was destroyed in 70 A.D. Jerusalem is a thriving city just last within the last month. It became the most populated city, overtaking Tel Aviv in Israel. But it will be destroyed again during the Great Tribulation. Here it is when it says the city, verse 19, it's a reference to Jerusalem. Now the great city was divided into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon was remembered before God to give her of the cup of the vine of the fierceness of his wrath. So here we have a future connection between a Babylon that God is going to judge again, and um, but Jerusalem is, is being destroyed this time by this earthquake. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and great hailstone from heaven fell upon men, every hailstone upon the weight of a talent, and men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since the plague was exceedingly great. So when we read in Matthew 24 about the times in which we live, I'd love to stand up here and tell you that every day is going to be better and better, and you're going to be happier and happier. And since you gave your life to the Lord, God has a wonderful plan for your life. I wonder what the people during the Reformation thought about that Bible study. When they took a biblical stand uh, and were willing to give their life for truth rather than compromise in doctrine. No, the Lord says this is just the beginning of sorrows. We're going to see, he said, wars and famines and pestilence, 
a great falling away, the rapture and then the tribulation. Um, And having said that, I can end on a positive note because on Sunday, we're reading the end of the story. We're in Jeremiah, but we are um, finishing up because we um, have to finish up our, our series in Isaiah chapter 65 where it says, and there was a new heaven and a new earth. So with all the heavy stuff that I laid on you tonight, let me leave you with this. In the new heaven and new earth, it says there's no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, no more death, for the former things are gone and they'll never be remembered again. And you are going to live forever and ever and ever as kings and priests in God's kingdom. And it'll never come to an end. So we're in the tunnel right now, and the tunnel is dark, but there is a light at the end of that tunnel, and that's what we call the blessed hope. Amen? I believe it at that. Let's stand. We'll close. Lord, we see the parallels. We see the warnings. And just like Chuck, when you've been around long enough, you see it come full circle. And so we see these things taking place in our own nation today. And we're grieved to the core, and we're not happy-clappy about any of it, no more than Jeremiah was. Uh, he wanted to quit. Uh, he was lonely, he was rejected, he was persecuted, and nobody wanted to listen to his message. But his message was fulfilled exactly like you said it would be. And in the meantime, you told him not to worry about it because you would be with him. And so as we go out tonight praying for our nation, we pray that you would also, Lord, go before us and be with us. Thank you for the blessed hope in Jesus' name. Amen.